Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Half an hour of majestic prose. Um, and that being so, I'm going to begin this week with a poem. Small turquoise things are hurled into ponds. Men with whisks lurk in the shrubbery. Bandits vomit. Detectives cringe. Mr Hobart is implacable but rubbery. And that was the poem. Um, Much of today's show is um, a long story, uh, an old story, actually, very old story, that appeared in in the legendary um, Malice of Forethought Press paperback Twitching and Shattered. Um, And this is called The Abandoned Zoo. One abandoned zoo. By the banks of the River Ack, or was it the River Ick, she had built herself a hut. She lined the walls with some sort of cork matting which had been bequeathed to her in the will of a distant relative whose identity had never been revealed. She had received two packing cases of cork matting and a plastic carrier bag full of mud. At first she thought they must mean something, be clues to some hidden treasure but she did not know how to begin to look, and as time went by, she forgot about them. She threw the mud away and stored the matting in her attic. Now, years later, it at last came in useful. It was just the thing for her riverside hut. On the other side of the river, she could see the abandoned zoo. Empty cages stood rusting in the bleak morning light. The aviary had collapsed completely. The block of administrative buildings and zookeepers' quarters had been bulldozed into the ground, and her father had been responsible for this destruction. She cooked her breakfast on the portable skillet outside the hut, then sat down in the mud to chew it, staring fixedly across the river until the descending mist obscured her view. Two. Beery Yarns Mr Wad drank and drank and drank. His friend said, Wad, you're drunk. He raised one eyebrow and spat at them. They turned away, bilious and sad. Mr Wad kept on drinking. One by one the zookeepers joined him and they exchanged anecdotes about Arctic bears, completely demented elk, frisky goats halitosis-ridden iguanas, Jesuits, klaxon-mouthed lizards, malevolent narwhals, old pigs, quite repulsive swordfish, totally uncouth vultures, woolly zemas and yeast-eating zebras. Mr Wad had once been a Jesuit, but he had been defrocked. Now, when not drinking, he carried around a bucket full of sprats to throw to the seals. It was not a fulfilling life, although the seals enjoyed themselves. The sprats didn't. Mr Wad himself was fairly indifferent, until the day he was thrown down a mine shaft. He was never seen again. The seals pined, and the landlord at the pub missed him. But the sprats rejoiced. 3. Constructing Xylophones Thursday was a big day for potash. The word was on everybody's lips. 
the, the rumpled felons who mucked out the tiger cages became particularly excited. One of their number would be chosen to shovel the potash onto the truck. By noon they would all be hanging around the potash shed, eyes gleaming with eagerness. Often they missed lunch, anxious not to lose their chance. By three o'clock, with nerves taut and hearts thumping, their muttering would rise in both speed and volume until it became a chorus of baleful wailing. And then the rumble of tyres on grit as the big truck from the xylophone factory hurtled through the zoo entrance, breaking sharply by the potash shed. The driver, a surly man named Dweb, lurched off to the canteen without a word. As ever, he would be fed a huge bowl of turnips, free of charge, courtesy of the management. Outside, by the potash shed, the rumpled felon's jabbering died down as the time came for the shoveler to be named. Dr Quill appeared, shovel cradled lovingly in his arms. He spoke briefly and then nodded towards one of the felons who shuffled gratefully forwards to accept the shovel. Those who had been passed over this time gradually drifted off with much grumbling, lamentation, rending of garments and gnashing of teeth. Dr Quill returned to his office. Potash was shoveled onto the truck. The driver returned. He drove the truck to the xylophone factory at Hooting Yard. The potash was shoveled into a cellar. On the factory floor, production could resume. Sirens blared, engines chugged, the clang of hammer on anvil. Industry. Four. Dreadful weather. The mist began to clear. Her trousers were damp from squatting in the mud. She went inside the hut and nailed the final piece of cork matting into place. Rough, hessian rugs covered the mud floor. There were no windows and no door, only an open doorway. She had decided to paint something on the lintel, something insignificant yet charged, something glorious. The word... Calcium, perhaps. But she had no paint and no paintbrush and the shops were shut and it had started to rain. She smeared wax onto the rugs to stiffen them but hours later it was still raining. She heard a sort of glop sound coming from the river, loud and intriguing, but she did not investigate. Five. Extremely vociferous. You drink too much, Mr Wad. You do not spend your life throwing sprats out of a bucket, Dr Quill. That is irrelevant, Mr Wad. I throw one sort of fish to another sort of fish, morning, noon and night, for a pittance. If I should choose to spend that pittance on booze, who are you to gainsay me, Dr Quill? I beg your pardon, Mr Wad. The fish eat fish. I drink beer. A man must live, Dr Quill. 
A seal is not a fish, Mr. Wad. That is irrelevant. My arguments remain valid and coruscating, Dr. Quill. Get out of my office at once, Mr. Wad. I intend to remain here until you tell me what happens to all that potash, Dr. Quill. That is none of your concern, Mr. Wad. I am nevertheless intrigued, Dr. Quill. Pray why, Mr. Wad. I never cease to be astounded each Thursday by the craven kowtowing of the tiger cage muckers. Their pitiful, slavering eagerness to shovel potash onto a truck is a sight vile to mine eyes. God knows I've tried to reason with them. I've spent long hours in the pub trying to unravel the intricacies of their behaviour, but it remains beyond my ken. I have come to you that you may shed light on the matter, Dr Quill. Am I given to understand that you're sowing discord among the employees, not to mention mutiny? Such conduct imperils the efficient running of the zoo, Mr Wad. Quite possibly so, Dr Quill. I shall have you sacked for this, Mr Wad. I'm afraid that course of action is not open to you, Dr Quill. Why so, Mr Wad? I have here in my pocket an illuminated veliot with tickered chaps, Dr Quill. Good God, Mr Wad. I think you'll admit that this casts an entirely different light on things, Dr Quill. Tickered, you say, Mr Wad? Precisely, Dr Quill. I appear to have no option but to lay before you the full ramifications of the matter, Mr Wad. Indeed, it would appear so, Dr Quill. Tickered chaps, my hat. Well, this may take some time. Allow me to offer you a drink, Mr Wad. Thank you, Dr Quill. A slug of something ferocious will suit me fine. Six. Fairly unpleasant. Extensive dental work had done little to quell Dr Quill's smugness concerning his mouth. He packed food into it, relishing his own teeth and tongue as much as he savoured the masticated slop that dribbled down his throat. He sat at his table, gobbling krill, and pondered Mr Wad's demise by the light of the candelabra. He could have him set upon by thugs in a dark and lonely warehouse by the docks. He could shoot him with a high-velocity rifle from a vantage point concealed behind shrubbery in a public park or plaza. He could send him a sachet, ostensibly a free sample of shampoo, but in reality a deadly poison which, entering the pores of his scalp, would course implacably through his entire body, ravaging him with fits, dementia, paralysis and death. He could arrange for him to go on a round-the-world cruise on the pretext of official zoo business and when the ship was halfway round the world, have it torpedoed by piratical mercenaries. He could lure him into a disused barn or other farm building, bolt the doors with enormous padlocks and incinerate him. He could have him buried under a pile of rocks. He could arrange a puzzling faked suicide involving rope, a blowtorch, chicken wire, pastry cutters and bleach. He could encase him in concrete and hurl him over a cliff. He could send him a parcel of explosives wired to detonate when opened. 
He could have him press-ganged into a private army and sent off to fight in a distant foreign war, trusting to luck that he would meet his doom. He could challenge him to engage in hand-to-hand combat on a perilous mountain ledge, then produce, as if from nowhere, a glistening scimitar to give himself an unassailable advantage. He could have him bound hand and foot, helpless and immobile in the path of a high-speed express train. He could train a vulture to perch on Mr Wad's roof, biding his time until its maleficent vigil caused Wad, gaunt and fearful, to perform some desperate, self-obliterating act out of spiritual terror. He could fling him down a mine shaft. Seven. Grand Tradition. The xylophone factory at Hooting Yard was founded by Bales Lavendermouth in 1861. Lavendermouth was the son of a Peruvian wrestler and a West Australian bandage stainer, and at the age of 17 inherited a vast fortune due to a clerical error. By the time he was 20, he'd spent virtually the whole amount attempting to destroy all world religions within his lifetime. Taking his sister's advice not to waste what was left of the money, he removed himself to the small town of Hoon and worked for ten years, building the xylophone factory with his bare hands. It is a classic piece of industrial architecture, base, brickish and monolithic. Although still known by its original name, the factory has not produced xylophone since 1892, when Lavendermouth died. A succession of businesses rented the premises from his sister over the following years, and by turns the factory churned out whisks, braddles, cudgels, litmus paper, doweling, vainglory, distemper and string. In 1947, the present owners took over the building, pledged to resurrect the visionary genius of Bale's Lavendermouth. Their attempts to construct working copies of the original xylophones met with ill luck, however. On St Mungo's Day 1950, a fire destroyed much of the factory interior. Reconstruction was slow but determined, and the owners took pause to rethink. Their decision was worthy of Lavendermouth himself, their guiding spirit. The factory's entire resources were henceforth devoted to the production of inspirational choir funnels with attendant hatches and lubbing. Great cellars were built underneath the factory, where stores of zinc, mulberries, potash, glunt, pig iron and shub are continually stacked up. Furnaces burn, machinery hums, and old stained glass windows are smashed to pieces with gigantic steam hammers. For all this activity, however, a canker lies at the heart of the xylophone factory. A grey and dismal portrait of Bale's Lavendermouth, hanging on the wall of the boardroom, looks down and witnesses ever more fiendishness and sin carried out in his name. Eight. Her skull. Her skull was dented in several places. She did not know why. She stared at the roll of tarpaulin which had been abandoned in the turnip field next to her hut. It seemed to have something printed on it. She decided to take a closer look and donned her Wellington boots. As she clambered over the fence, she heard another sort of glop 
sound from the river, pure and urgent. Turning to look, she lost her balance and fell, banging her head on an old churn. This created another dent in her skull and left her insensible. It was still raining. Nine, Istvan's recordings. Historians estimate that only four or five of the xylophones built by Bale's lavender mouth are still extant. Of these, only one has been positively identified. Since 1950, it has been in the possession of Istvan Skrimjor, an international beekeeping expert and amateur musician. Istvan's compositional methods are idiosyncratic but effective. Following the usual round of lecture tours declaiming on the joys of Roman Catholic beekeeping, Istvan embarks on a week of reckless hedonism. He attempts to satisfy every vice he can think of, often falling foul of the law in the process. He returns home frazzled and dishevelled and consumed by self-loathing. Thus, racked with guilt, he bolts the doors and proceeds to expiate his wretchedness by means of prolonged improvisational forays on the lavender-mouth xylophone. Every single moment of these performances is taped. The results are then released as CDs on Istvan's own label. There are no cuts. In fact, no editing of any sort. Quality control and critical selectiveness have no part to play in this project. Istvan presses only small, limited editions of his records, and for the collector they can be devilishly hard to obtain. A full catalogue of his works would fill too much time here, but the list which follows is, however, fairly representative. Songs of Rapaciousness, Light and Turpentine The Terps House and Other Pieces Istvan Scrimjaw and His Enticing Xylophone The Lighthouse Stank and other songs. Turpentine Light, Turpentine Valley. Smooching with Istvan. House of Terps, a sonata. 10. Jumbled Questions. Was Dr. Quill implicated in the murder of Mr. Wad? Heavily. What are the names of the present owners of the xylophone factory? Hard to say without fear of contradiction. When is the feast day of St Mungo? January the 14th. What did Bale's lavender mouth look like? The flesh of his face was pocked and grey. He sported a massive walrus moustache and from time to time an unkempt goatee beard. His ears protruded to a rather unfortunate extent, the left ear more so than the right. His eyes were alight with frenzy and ardour despite the curse of recurrent conjunctivitis. His nose was like that of a man partial to drink, reddish, purple, bulbous, and given to developing a legion of unsightly pustules. Yet Lavender Mouth was a lifelong teetotaler. His mouth was thin and twisted into a permanent watery smile. Hair sprouted in uneven matted tufts on his scalp and down his cheeks. His head had the overall appearance of a blighted potato. Is there any solid evidence linking Dr Quill with Mr Wad's mystery assailant? Not as yet. The police are likely to have been diverted by a red herring. Such as? The telephone numbers of several prominent figures of the Scandinavian underworld were found written on a torn piece of blotting paper discovered in a waste bin in Mr Wad's brother's kitchen. 
That is merely one example. How did Mr Wad meet his end? On Friday the 6th of October he was walking home from the zoo. He was set upon by an unknown assailant who, having bashed him on the head with a bradawl, proceeded to throw him down an abandoned mine shaft some 400 yards distant. What is the rhyme associated with St Mungo? The tree that never grew, the bird that never flew, the fish that never swam, the bell that never rang. Was the zoo owned by Dr Quill? Partly. What was Bale's Lavender Mouth's real name as given on his birth certificate? Orvin Shally Mudbat. Was Mr Wad an habitué of gambling dens and other low places and sinks of corruption and infamy? Yes. What was Dr Quill's first name? Agamemnon. In what year did St Mungo die? 610 AD. What was Dr Quill's account of his whereabouts at the time Mr Wad met his death? Dr Quill stated to the police officer who interviewed him that he'd taken an official trip to Iceland to meet and parley with a gang of scientists involved in research into Krill. He was able to provide, an, as corroborative evidence, an airline ticket and an Icelandic daily newspaper printed in Reykjavik and dated Friday the 6th of October. In addition, forensic experts removed traces of melted Arctic snow from Dr Quill's bath sponge. What other name did Bale's Lavendermouth assume at certain times in his life, and why? Thomas van der Blulie, out of sheer bloody-mindedness. Who were the main customers for the inspirational choir funnels with attended hatches and lubbing made at the xylophone factory? Accounts differ. According to one annual report, mysteriously undated, the bulk of the produce is exported to various Latin American oligarchies. Yet a spokesman for the xylophone factory has stated on a number of occasions that the inspirational choir funnels are almost all snapped up by private collectors scattered throughout the world with no great concentration in any one continent. Oddly, this version is not accompanied by any information regarding the hatches, lubbing, or indeed the provisional lubbing, which accounts for an increasing share of the factory's total output. It was Mr Wad's belief, however, that, quote, there was some funny kind of tie-in with the zoo, unquote. Dr Quill has refused to answer questions related to this angle. It is thought that Mr Wad was collating a body of evidence in support of his accusation and that he was close to the completion of this work when he met his end. But this remains merely conjecture on the part of Inspector Abdab and his trusty team of detectives who, together with their sniffer dogs, seem to have embarked on a long and tortuous case with no end in sight. Is it true that Istvan Scrimgeour recorded a four-hour xylophone solo entitled The Bell That Never Rang and that a scratched copy of the disc minus its dust jacket was discovered underneath the sink in Mr Wad's bathroom? Yes, on both counts. Eleven, Krill Purveyor. 
Lars shivered. He sat hunched on a stool huddled in thin blankets. His balaclava had seen better days. Filthy snow caked his traitorous beard. Grey-black sludge lay in pools about his feet. He lit another cigarette and checked his watch. It had stopped at ten past six. He had lost the key for the padlocks on the big crate, but that wasn't his problem anymore. He stood up and began to pace around the shed, kicking his ludicrous boots at the walls. Why had he agreed to this tryst, here in a rotting outbuilding at the edge of the worm farm? There were surely more salubrious places where they could count equally well on secrecy. He rummaged in his pocket and pulled out the last of the turnip sandwiches. Biting into it, he cursed the day he had become involved. Suddenly the door crashed open and a tall, hooded figure trudged into the shed, carrying a parcel inexpertly wrapped with brown paper, string, old newspapers, gum, plaster of Paris and spittle. The figure emitted two low hoots. Lars gulped. He knew that these were to be the hoots of destiny. Twelve. Left open. The funeral of Bale's Lavendermouth took place on January the 14th, 1897, at St Mungo's on the Ack. The great man had been dead for five years, but there had been problems finding the corpse. In accordance with his last will and testament, Lavendermouth's sister had had the cadaver encased in a block of ice and ferried to Iceland. There, she paid a small sum to a jolly Jack Tar to sail the body in his tug further north, there to be more completely entombed in dense pack ice. Publicity for this escapade caused an out. Publicity for this escapade caused an outcry in the press, and the issue was debated in Parliament. Several archbishops demanded that Hilda Blumvainstro, Lavendermouth's sister, be hanged for her iniquity. The brouhaha died down, however, and would have rested there were it not for the involvement of a shabby private detective named Valentine Scrimjaw. Miraculously, he tracked down Lavendermouth's cadaver, embedded in ice and perfectly preserved, and had it shipped back to the mother country. No one knows why he did this. He gained nothing except a footnote in a boring and virtually unreadable history book long out of print. Scrimjaw was one of the few people to attend the funeral which did not have Hilda's blessing. Temperatures plummeted on the morning that the service took place. Snowdrifts built up around the church. Lavendermouth's coffin was left open throughout and his corpse almost fell into the snow when one of the badly paid pallbearers stumbled. There is no record of why St Mungo's was chosen. It was a small stone church long fallen into disrepair. At the time of the funeral, the doors were hanging off their hinges, the altar lay smothered under a blanket of dust, and the bells in the tower were cracked and tuneless. The church stood within the bailiwick of Snatter, a place with no connections to Lavendermouth, his family or his history. His great xylophone factory stands 40 miles away to the west. St Mungo's was firebombed by a crack squad of rational arsonists in 1942. Surveying maps of the site one day, eight years later, Valentine Scrimjaw's grandson decided to build a zoo.
13. Missed nothing. She eventually regained consciousness. Bruised and muddy, her skull freshly dented, she ignored the role of tarpaulin and trudged back to her hut. She gulped down icy water from the spigot and saw that the mist was descending again. Within minutes, the abandoned zoo across the river was utterly invisible. So that was the abandoned zoo and uh, not much time left this week. Time just for um, an excerpt from some lesser known editions of the Bible. And uh, this is a little note about Bilgecrew's Bible. A decidedly rum Bible published in 1804 by Maffick Bilgecrew, of whom little is known by his height. The holy text is rendered almost incomprehensible in that all references to wooden things, things with wings, fruit, four-legged animals, blunt instruments, states of misery, ointments, bandages, heroic baking, custard, rubbing alcohol, rainfall, holes, swimming, crocuses, pestilence, hailstorms, derision, trees, crumbling pastry, whisks, whiskey, boric acid, imbecility, signposts, deafening noises and rotating things have been expunged. And that's all we have time for on Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. I do hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll be back again next week at the same time. Bye-bye. been